like all the nations that are around me, that you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you as king. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel, all together. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Would you please remain standing as we just pray? Uh, Father, thank you for um, these ancient words. And we just ask this morning that you would um, give us a, a deep soul alertness to your word, that we would listen to it carefully and give heed to it. Um, and all of this, Lord, is about loving you more, um, exalting Jesus in our presence. So we ask this of you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you, Denver Prez. And if you are just uh, visiting us, we're really glad that you're here. Um, about 400 years uh, before Jesus was born, it was about the time Malachi, the prophet Malachi, or the prophet Joel, were writing their works in your Old Testament. At the same time, in ancient uh, Greece, in Athens, Aristotle was also writing. And um, Aristotle was, um, you know, he, he's like, way to think about him is he's like one of the first uh, political theorists and we still kind of use his works. So he was thinking about the nature of government. And if you were here during our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, you probably remember a little bit of this. But Aristotle basically said, listen, there's only three kinds of government. You can have a monarchy, which has a king or a queen, an oligarchy, which is kind of the rule of, the, uh, of a few, um, or a democracy, and that's rule of the many. And he says, listen, democracy is not great, but it's the best we can do because it protects against tyranny. Uh, but if you'll remember, Aristotle's ultimate point was the ideal government is a benevolent king. And uh, the reason is because a king can act quickly and powerfully, which is great, especially if he's good and trustworthy, like no red tape. Uh, now, at the time that Aristotle was recording these ideas on government, uh, around 400 years B.C., Israel had already been having the same conversation for 1,000 years. Israel was way ahead of its time, uh, mostly because they understood what was at stake with this conversation of a king. 
So if you'll remember, we're in the sermon series on the writings of Moses, and um, we remember that Deuteronomy is just a way of thinking about Deuteronomy is a series of farewell speeches uh, by Moses to his people as they're about to go into the promised land. And Moses is giving his people a few final instructions on how to live when they finally get home. And in our passage this morning, which Helen just read for us, Moses anticipates that when they get to the land, Israel will get themselves a king. And when they do, their king has to be different than the other kinds of kings. Now, you might be asking, and it would be right for you to ask, is what could an ancient discussion on the rules for Jewish kings have to do with a modern person living in Denver? And uh, because honestly, we don't live in a kingdom. And so who cares, right? Let me suggest to you, this is like the most relevant conversation for modern people. Um, Listen, and here's why. We are being ruled. And I'm not talking about the president. I'm not talking about Congress. Your governing authority shapes you in a way you don't even understand. See, your governing authority, without an election, mind you, tells you, If you measure up, your authority is what gives you the grid or the system against which we measure some of life's most important questions. Like, am I good enough? Does life really matter? Am I loved? Why study ancient rules for Jewish kings that was written 3,500 years ago? Because we are still being ruled. And who we understand our king to be matters bad. It matters. So uh, this text this morning is going to give us an occasion to kind of peek under the surface a little bit. And as we study this passage, uh, we're just going to ask it two questions. Uh, why do we need a king? And why do we need Jesus as a king? And that's that's going to be our two, uh, our two headings. So let's turn to our first point. Why do we need a king? So in describing how kings should behave, Moses is giving us something more important than what we can kind of detect at first glance. He's telling us about our need for a king. And, you know, our initial response is is probably pretty intuitive. Like when you're in an emergency, you need a person who has both power and authority to act on your behalf, right? If they have power but no authority, then their, high, their hands are kind of tied, right? There's not much they can do. But if they have um, authority but no power, right, that's cute and sentimental, but you're still out of luck, right? As we're going to see in this text, there is something more that a king does for his subjects. And, and let me explain uh, with my own personal story a little bit. So a lot of you guys know I grew up in a Catholic home, And uh, your average Catholic is certain about one thing, that Jesus died a bloody death because you messed up. And we all felt really bad about it, right? We call this Catholic guilt. We kind of laugh about it. Um, I was, uh, was reminded of this every Sunday when I went to Mass and I saw Jesus hanging on a cross. So Catholics really like crucifixes. So the difference between a cross and a crucifix is a crucifix has an, uh, 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 you know, Jesus actually on the cross himself. And so we see that, right? And um, uh, we understood that Jesus died. He took away my sin. 
And basically what that means is I'm at like sort of at ground zero or a neutral position with God. I get a new start, but now I have to do a lot of good works to build my resume. I have to measure up so that I can get enough credit to uh, earn and merit God's approval. And here, though, is what I didn't have with God. Although I believe that Jesus had died on a cross, I didn't have a definitive and certain validation. And validation is what I desperately needed. In fact, not just me, but all, all humans, all humanity needs validation. All the sociologists, there's tons of interesting studies about this, will tell you that we can't even properly exist without validation. Now, interestingly, this logic is how come Moses knew that Israel would appoint a king. This is why he begins, look there in verse 14. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. You see that? What you're seeing there is a universal impulse to get a king. Now, why is this the case? It's because there's a universal need for validation. That's why. Follow this with me. How How do we get validation? Well, for traditional cultures, they believe that there's a sort of sacred order, right? A moral law or a universal set of virtues that exists out there. And we've got to align ourselves or change ourselves to meet that standard. And if we do, we'll get our validation, right? Our leaders um, are those uh, whose approval we seek. And those are the ones whom we set over us, right? They're the ones who affirm us to tell us that we meet the standard, that we live up to the standard. Those are the voices that govern us. We'll call them functional kings. We live in their realms and we live by their orthodoxies. Now, modern cultures, different than traditional cultures, uh, do the same thing, but they kind of hide the reality a little bit. Instead of agreeing to the premise that there's some sacred order out there in which we got to align ourselves, what modern people will say is there is no transcendent or sacred order to the universe. Instead, your own impulses and your own desires are the standard, right? You are your own sacred order. You need to be true to yourself. Don't change and align yourself to some orthodoxy out there. Do the opposite, Indulge. Look inside. And if you are brave enough to be true to yourself, then you will become your own validator, right? You're your own authority, and you have set yourself as king. Now, both traditional and modern cultures have problems, and the Bible critiques both, right? But modern ideas of self-validation are actually more pervasive in our day the idea that we can look inside of ourselves and find out who we truly are, that's actually incredibly naive. Why? Because who you are, who we are, is always changing. Who I am truly in this moment is completely different than who I am in five minutes, right? I mean, worse than that, when I look inside myself, I see competing and contradictory things. You remember, like, I talked about this last week, like, I want to be fit but I also want to eat American classic chocolate cake from Costco. I want both of those things. They're both authentically me. 
Uh, I am both contradictory things at the same time. But even when a modern person who looks inside themselves to presumably discover who they are, whatever it is we think we are finding in ourselves is actually just a reflection and a product of the culture in which we're situated. So like Tim Keller, he was giving this lecture at a conference in England 10 years ago, and he kind of goes through this exercise of um, validation, and he does it in this particular case through um, sexual self-understanding. But he says, um, imagine a guy, uh, a pagan Anglo-Saxon from a warrior culture walking down the streets of London 1,000 years ago. And he looks inside of his heart, and he sees two feelings. One feeling is he just, like, loves killing people, right? It's this inordinate aggression against people who cross him. He is a warrior, right? And the other feeling that he discovers there is same-sex attraction. So what's he going to do? Well, he evaluates these two feelings. Situated in an honor and warrior culture, he looks at the feeling to kill, and he says, that's me. That's me. Meanwhile, in that same culture, he's going to see that same-sex attraction and say, that's not me. I mean, that's something, but that's not me, and so I need to suppress that, right? But today, if that same man is walking down the streets of London, and he looks into his heart, and he sees these same two feelings, he has this explosive and inordinate aggression when people cross him, and he also has same-sex attraction, but what he does this time in his modern culture, he sees that instinct to kill and to express that aggression, and he says, that's something, but that's not me. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to go to counseling. I'm going to work with anger management, whatever. But with the same-sex attraction, this time he's going to say, that's me. That is what is authentically me. Now, what's the difference? Is this guy looking in his heart and figuring out who he is? No, he's looking into his heart using a certain grid to, ter- to determine who he is. And he keeps certain things, and he throws out others. But where does that grid come from? That grid for understanding and interpreting himself is the culture. The culture is still the authority. The culture is still the king. The culture is the validator. So what's the point? You will set a king over you. Whether you come from a traditional or a modern culture, you will let something be that grid and something be your authority. You will set a king over you. And which king will it be? You need a king. You need validation desperately. Something to answer the question, who am I? Does my life matter? Am I loved? You can't live without it. That is a human need. You need some voice that tells you that you measure up. You need someone, an authority, a king whose approval matters, that says that your resume is good enough. You need it. Do I have your attention? Uh, Does the Bible have your attention, this ancient text? So what I've tried to make a case so far is that you need a good king because you will set a king over you. And so your king's character really matters. 
So let me get deeper into this passage because now we're going to see, we're going to move, not just why we need a king, but why we need Jesus as a king. So let's go to our second part. Um, have you ever been walking uh, and you spot someone in the distance coming your way and it appears that that person's waving at you? Right? And you wave back and you realize that they are looking way beyond you and communicating to someone behind you. Uh, y'all know what I'm talking about? So one time I was going to Mexico and I was supposed to get picked up from the airport from uh, one of my, my second cousins that I hadn't seen since like we were little kids. So I knew her, but I didn't really know her. Um, I couldn't quite remember what she looked like or certainly she had changed. So I'm coming down the escalator and there's this really pretty woman waving at me and like mouthing words at me. And I thought that was her, right? And she seemed super affectionate. And I thought, all right, we're just going to go in for the old long-lost cousin hug, right? And so I start mouthing words back to her. And I kind of open my arms, going in for the hug. And about 10 feet away, I realize she's not communicating with me. Like, her husband or boyfriend is, like, behind me. It was, like, super awkward. Uh, Can I suggest to you that's kind of what is happening in this text, Right? We're looking at this king, but not the king that's coming at him. It's the king behind him. Moses is talking to his people. He's addressing a future king, but someone that is way into the distant future. And let me, understand, let me explain kind of how Israel understood its king. So in ancient cultures, the king and, and their god were the same person, right? You think about Pharaoh, he wasn't just their leader, he was divine, right, in Egypt. So an ancient king often arrived by his own appointing, and usually it was through like a military coup, uh, and usually at the expense of his, um, his political enemies or his subjects. But in Israel, that's not how things are done. In Israel, a king is not supposed to be the man, He is supposed to be the ideal human. He's not the country's deity. He is fully and perfectly submitted to God. So how does Israel find this guy? Well, Moses says, look there in verse 15. He says, you may indeed set a king over you who the Lord your God will choose. Right? So no self-appointing, no coups are permitted in Israel. And this king must have a different vision of power. Uh, one commentator, Daniel Block, he says, most kings use their authority to satisfy their lust for power, status, wealth, but not the king of Israel. He's not supposed to do it like that. And so in verse 16, look there, he says, he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself, right? That's, refer- that's referencing the king's military might. Uh, so his authority is not for personal conquest. He is not to amass power. Verse 17, look there. He says, the king shall not acquire many wives for himself. Again, this isn't just sexual gratification. This is about making alliances with other countries to uh, to improve the king's own status, right? So in the second part of verse 7, it also uh, prohibits the king from amassing excessive silver and gold. So the office of the king is not about getting rich off the backs of his people, right? It's about serving them. Now, all that I just said is absolutely revolutionary in that context in the ancient Near East, right? This king thinks about power, status, wealth, 
categorically different than, his, than the world in which he resides. And then on top of it all, the law is given to this king. The king is not the legislator, you see. He's not, he, this king is supposed to walk around with the Torah on his heart as if it was written on his heart, right? And so verse 18, it says, this king is supposed to write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And then verse 19, and it shall be with him and read it all the days of his life, keeping all the words of this law, doing them, right? So this king doesn't say, might makes right, he doesn't go all like judge dread on you, you know, like I am the law. No, he doesn't do that. This king was to be perfectly under God's law. Now, Moses is looking at Israel, but he's looking beyond them. He knows, like no human king will ever truly be a benevolent king. None can perfectly give his people the flourishing that they need. Because of the sin of this world and the sin that reigned in the hearts of Israel's kings, God himself would have to become their king. That is the story of the Bible, you guys. Now, this is what I want you to understand. At the time of Jesus, there was this messianic expectation. This means that Israel didn't have, they were without their own ruler and they were waiting for the promised king, right? They're, in, they're under the, the oppression of Rome. They don't have their king. Rome's king is their king, and they're waiting. And they're waiting for a king who would live up to Deuteronomy 17, a king who'd come and re- rescue them from the oppression of their oppressors, right? So every Jew knew that the welfare of the people was tied to the character of the king, That's what actually got Israel into this mess in the first place, right? I mean, all the kings of Israel were really bad. Everyone suffered, and so the Lord dethroned them all. The Jews were without this ideal human, this ideal king to lead them. And then, out of nowhere, Jesus appears. And he starts, like, fulfilling, like, dozens of prophecies He's born in Bethlehem, which is predicted of this king. And and where you're born, you just got no control over, right? That's not up to you, right? And then at his baptism, the voice of God echoing from the heavens chooses and anoints him. And he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, God is saying, this is your king. This is the son of God. Listen to him. Moreover, Jesus' entire ministry is characterized by radically different vision of power and status and wealth. All those things are turned upside down with Jesus. He says things like, hey, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. Or he says, the son of man, the king didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he embodied all that that Deuteronomy envisioned for a king. Now, just like think about this with me for a moment. Jesus, who who was with his father for all eternity past, right, in the heavenly realm, a place of perfection with no death or disease or curse, with all the power, status, eternal wealth in the chambers of, of heaven, he left all of it to come to us. And he looked not to his own interests, 
but yours. You know, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on it, he would say it like this. He says, although the King Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But this king emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a king who gave up power, status, and wealth. And he humbled himself, becoming obedient. He perfectly fulfilled the law, every jot and tittle, to the finest details, to the point of death, even a death on a cross. Jesus was most certainly the promised king. Everyone knew it, but they hated it. I mean, oh man, they, they gave him a crown, but they crowned his head, not with gold, but with thorns. They nailed him to a cross. They nailed a sign over his head. And what did it say? King of the Jews. People mocked him. They preferred to set a different king over themselves. And guess the words that would come from this king's mouth as he hung there. Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's still seeking out their interests. Listen, when they rejected Jesus as king, they weren't free. They were simply setting a different king with a different value, different orthodoxy over themselves. But what king do they want? You gotta remember, the welfare of the people is tied to the character of the king. Your welfare is tied to your king, whoever you have appointed over yourself. Your king's choices matters. So who's your king? Like, who have you given authority to? Whose orthodoxy tells you if you are living your life right? Who is your ultimate validator? Who says your life measures up? All right, so if your ultimate validator is your dad or mom, what happens when sin runs its course and they wound you emotionally or leave you or, don't, or you don't achieve the validation of their expectations? Or if your validator is your spouse, what happens when they die? Like in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, how good is your validator when they're in a coffin? If you are your own validator, well, what happens when you don't even live up to your own expectations? Or, or what if you do? You'll either hate yourself or you'll look down at others who don't live up to your validation markers or don't agree with your self-established orthodoxy. Here, here's my point. Every program for validation, whether traditional or modern, the validation you and I desperately need, validation that says, I matter, I'm accepted, I am loved, all of those validation mar markers will fail you miserably because they are sorry kings and your welfare is tied to them. Listen closely, because if... Like, if what I'm saying is, is, is confusing you, please, like, I'm begging you, please keep coming back. Because, like, this, we talk about this all the time. This is, like, what runs through the veins of this church. Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It's, it's not a last name. Jesus, the anointed one, the chosen one, the king. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled 
the office of the king. And this king who knew no sin, who never sinned, he becomes sin. And and not just our sin, but the curse of the whole universe falls on him while he's hanging on a cross. But then, on that third day, he's resurrected and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. That's That's just like fancy talk for saying that Jesus assumed authority. Jesus took his throne. The world's rightful king reigns. But let me tell you why his authority is so radically different. What we have here isn't traditional uh, culture whose authority comes from outside standards that say kind of buckle yourself up, you know, like tie your shoes tight, see if you measure up. No. But neither is it like modern culture that says that authority comes from your own standards. But you still gotta, you still gotta perform to see if you measure up, to see if you're good enough. No. Bo- both of those scenarios are still about your performance. With Christ as your king and authority, we have one who lived up perfectly. He measured up. And although he measured up, he took our sin so that in him, in this king, we might become the righteousness of God. And we get this righteous standing, you see. That is complete validation that says, yes, you are enough. You're enough. Not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because Christ performed on our behalf. And nothing can change what Christ the King has done. Do you know what this means? The validation that your heart desperately needs is not achieved, it's received. It's received, and it can't, be, it can't be taken away. Jesus, this ideal king, this ideal human, measures up, and God looks at him and is pleased, and your welfare is tied to your king. And now God the Father looks at you, and he is so pleased. Even when you're at your darkest, most shameful moments. I know shame is paralyzing. And yet he looks at you squarely in the eyes and says, I'm so pleased with you. Even as God the Father loves God the Son, he loves you. Who's your king? Who have you placed over you? I hope it's him. Amen.